Hey guys, Bianabu presents the MedTech Podcast. If you're intrigued and want to learn more about how technology is changing healthcare, then this podcast is perfect for you. If you want to learn about entrepreneurship and innovation, then stick around. My name's Ash, and welcome to the conversation. I'm joined with Jitan Kundalia. He's a serial entrepreneur and inventor. He's experienced in healthcare as well as pharmaceuticals. And his latest venture is what we're here to talk about, Sensora Health. So this is an end-to-end remote monitoring system that is used for the elderly. And Jitan, your story, you, you gave a talk at the the conference on Saturday and your story is inspirational, extraordinary. And I remember driving back home from the conference, just thinking, wow, that your story sums up perfectly. It's quite cliche, but the phrase, when life knocks you down, you can either stay down or you can get back up. So I thought, you know what, I, you'd be a great person to have on the podcast, to have a talk, have a chat. You're doing so many things in the medtech health tech space, but then at the same time, you have so many different life experiences. So I think I wanted you to, on the podcast just to share everything you're doing. So great to have you. And why don't you just give a brief introduction? Thanks, Ash, for having me on. It's a real pleasure, especially off the back of such an amazing weekend at Lincoln yeah. with you guys and being able to present to you guys about how to have an inventive mind. My name's Jitan, biochemist by education. Fast forward to a lot of health tech experience, running patient focus groups in different hospitals and clinics and coming up with uh, innovations that are pain relievers to a lot of people's pains, right? If we identify as many of the pains as we can along the way and apply these pain relievers um, where the real innovation is, I think that we can make a real difference. And I've been able to do quite a lot of that by taking that standpoint yeah. from my approach. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And your talk stood out at the Lincoln conference just because of how personal it was. We we had a conversation beforehand that all the other speakers, they had their own little PowerPoint slides, whereas you, your your talk was a bit different. You stood at the front and just told a story which i loved it was really engaging and you could tell looking around the room everyone was interested everyone was on the edge of their seat wanting to learn a bit more about what you're doing i think to begin with let's go all the way back let's start you off from so you've come out of university tell me a bit about jitan's mindset then well coming out of uni got two degrees at that time i got my biochemistry degree and i got my first degree black belt in the martial arts where all my friends went to exercise their degree in a career or a job i decided to take some time out and go practice martial arts under one of our masters in canada on and off for a couple of years so i wanted to, to look at all the things i didn't give attention to while i was at at uni which was my own personal growth who am i what makes me tick i would like to say i had the foresight but actually i was probably just like I don't necessarily want to go straight into my career. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you could, you could claim it now, looking looking back on it. You might as well claim it. You, you know what? You had the foresight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd like to think that. I mean, that's, uh, let's just say yes. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think teaching others during uni, um, if you remember my opening of my presentation, all I said was helping the able be more able. And I realized that as teachers, people who want to do some good in this world, our aim is to help able people be more able so we can look after those who are unable, right? So you guys coming in out as medics, being able-bodied people, 
you're helping some people that need help that are unable, right, to a degree. Yeah. And so um, people like myself want to make you guys even better, give you the tools that you need to reach out to as many people as possible. And I would have realized that philosophy if I hadn't traveled to Canada and spent the time training in the martial arts and learning discipline. They're the obvious things of martial arts, right? Discipline, focus, breath work, so you can tackle anxiety and stresses, which we have a lot of in our careers and our daily lives. And so taking that time out and where all my friends are in work, they started at pharma companies and in hospitals and labs. You hear them while I'm away going, oh yeah, it's great in the first month. And then the next few months follow and they're like, yeah, there's a few problems. And by the time I got back two years later, people aren't happy. They're upset. But the good thing for me was, is that I learned from their experience and I made sure that I didn't follow the same path or go through the same experience where I'd lead to an upset. Sure. And the biggest thing I found was always leave every role every position and every person better do not wait until things get bad before you move on mm. right so even when i left my career right as as head of ops at reuters in the healthcare division in 2008 i didn't leave because things were bad i left because i'd hit a glass ceiling at the age of 28 Sure. And that's, that must be hard as well, identifying that you know what, you've hit that glass ceiling. Because it does take courage to ha to change. And so uh, what would you suggest to anyone who's just heard you say that and say, you know what, maybe I have hit a glass ceiling, but I don't know what to do? Well, first of all, you've got to know that you're hitting a glass ceiling. I did feel discriminated, but I could tell already that for a, a manager at the age of 28, I was probably not going to get promoted in the same space to any other level, like a partner or a director, till I was well into my 30s. And I didn't want to wait six, seven, eight years before I got an opportunity to grow further. So you've got to keep looking around and go that, what are the limits of my role? What is the target? What am I aiming for? Right? You keep your eye on the horizon, right? When you sail. And... You keep going, but imagine this. Imagine you knew that you're about to reach that horizon. The world was actually flat and you could fall off the edge. Would you keep going? No. Yeah. Right? So the glass ceilings like that, I could see what the ultimate goal was in that role and the furthest I could go years before I got there. And so when you hit that, when you hit that point, it's usually good to have some foresight, to have planned. What, would, what else would you do? I thought, okay, I've done... I've been a biochemist, I've been a laboratory technician, I've been a medical data analyst, became an analyst programmer. I headed up all the analysts, then ended up in my head of ops role. The next kind of roles that interested me was director of innovation, IT, or health tech. Hmm. And those guys were well into their 40s, for example. Quite young as a 40-year-old, if you're a CEO, that is the right age to be a CEO or a director. And I was like, I want to keep growing. This wasn't about title or pay. This is about growth. Sure. So you look at all the parallel things that you can do alongside that role. I'd already done all those things to get to that senior manager level. What else could I do? I was like, I'm going to go exercise these skills I've learned out in industry on my own without the support structure of 
staff and departments and a sales team and medical writers and all that. I'm going to go do this and see what I can do on my own. What are my strengths? What are my real weaknesses? Mm. So I left and started running patient focus groups with yeah. the NHS. Great. I, I'm going to pause you there before we get on to the next step of your journey, your career. And I've been dying to ask you, so I myself, I practiced karate since the age of four. And I got to brown belt with the white stripe. And when I, since I've got to uni, I, I just haven't had time to pursue it and carry on. But what I'm really interested in is obviously we spoke a little bit about um, karate and how it requires discipline, focus, and it almost changes your approach to life. So what I want to know is these qualities that you've picked up over your lifetime practicing martial arts, how has that translated into other areas of life, including entrepreneurship and success and just in general, how you approach professional scenarios? Martial arts teaches you when you get real with martial arts, especially you got those black belts, people who become black belts who train two or three times a week for a couple of hours over two, three, four years and then become a black belt. Sure, yeah. Then you got those black belts who are full-time black belts. They practice martial arts as a way of life. That is what they do. And so I was living amongst them. I was training amongst them. That's all they do. And even today, those same people are still martial arts practitioners and only martial arts practitioners. You must get around people that are way better than you, you know, what you want to achieve. If you want to be a superstar football player, you get around the best players possible. You might be the worst player, but quickly by osmosis, you'll you'll become closer to that. So I was up against these guys who I had nothing on. I wasn't faster than, I wasn't more flexible than, or any of that. But by the time I'd left, I'd learned a lot. I'll tell you some of the things I learned from it that helped me today. First thing is, martial arts wasn't something I did. You are martial arts. It is the backbone of who you are once you become a martial artist, right? A true martial artist. Mm. The discipline is a byproduct because there's no way you're getting through it without discipline. And you gain this discipline because, you know, you're following these high-functioning individuals who are phenomenal at what they do. And to even stand a chance to keep up with them, you're going to have to have discipline. But there are a few things that I learned. I think I gave you guys three philosophies, right? Yeah. Well, the fourth philosophy I didn't give you, but I'll give you the first three just so you know. And you remember on the talk I said, to help the able be more able. And the Latin saying, qui docet discit, which means he or she who teaches learns. Being a martial arts instructor, I learn even more discipline through disciplining my own students. I had to be the epiphany of discipline and honor and ethics to these guys because they're looking up to me sure, yeah. for their growth as a sensei. Then you've got team, the third one. Together each achieves more. The fourth one comes from what I really learned during my journey. It's intention alone is not enough. You must have intention without reservation. Mm. And so martial arts gives you that power of intention with no reservation. In everything you do, you'll take that standpoint. And the second, and definitely not the least, most powerful thing I learned from the martial arts, to confront your enemy comfortably. Mm. 
You know, when you're a kid and your dad throws you in front of the mat in a martial arts competition and you don't want to do it and you're scared of the guy that you're about to face. Yeah. And you've got all this fear and nerves and you don't, don't want to do it. Yeah. And then suddenly it's over within minutes and you feel so good about yourself. Yeah. You just elevated your existence and your strength and your power to another level. Yeah. I know that exact feeling so, because hmm. I, I used to compete in tournaments and I used to love it. But initially I remember being probably like six years old and the very first tournament I went to, I really didn't want to go. I was scared. I've always been naturally quite small for my age group. And when you when you start off fighting in tournaments at that age, they don't care about your weight. It's always age, it's age category. And then only when you get to 16, they start caring about your weight. So I, naturally, I've always just been smaller than everyone else. I remember being in my age category at six years old, being tiny compared to everyone else. I really didn't want to do it. But you know what? Like you said, after the bell goes and the, the couple minutes are up, it was rewarding just because I trained so hard up until that point. And then it was almost like I had faced my fear in the moment and overcome it. And then since then I fell in love with competing in tournaments. Your opponent reflects the enemy within yourself. Yeah. And the more you do it, the more you overcome it. That's why I think martial arts is such a good backbone of discipline in life for everything that you do. You learn this intuitiveness and these skills that you refine over time and you realize you wake up one day and you're like wow i've gained so much yeah yeah i recently came off a podcast recording and we had a little discussion about um your inner peace and and having a tranquil mind and then allowing your mind to make the decisions that you'd want to make otherwise if you let's say are stressed out have a brain fog you're gonna make impaired decisions and we were discussing about different ways where as entrepreneurs, as clinicians, we can over our, overcome our own our own mental barriers. And some of, some of the discussions we had, whether it was like meditation or mindfulness, and I I think karate, like you said, you're doing your form out at five o'clock in the morning. It is somewhat a form of meditation, right? Where you are yes. relaxing your mind and starting the day off calm and collected to go about your day and succeed. So let's get onto now your personal journey. So now you started now working patient focus groups. So what what's next? I basically started a company called iBoss at the time. It was called yeah, and we were building like just websites and applications in healthcare and different systems. One of the first things that we did during the actually it was in parallel to the patient focus groups and things that we were doing was for Saint George's University of London. They were running virtual patient scenarios right, EVIP cases on, online. And they wanted to be able to help medical students learn on the go. Sure. These virtual patients. Mm. We converted the virtual patient case database that they had into an app. They could learn VP on the way. Mm. They could be out or whatever and run through a few virtual patient cases, real world scenarios. And that was quite powerful. And we launched that on the app store called MedEd Cases. Then we launched another one with ethical cases called MedEd Ethics. Yeah. And then assessment cases, MedAssess. Because of the work I did with St. George's and the patient focus groups, Apple recognized me for my work. And in 2010, when the iPad came out, Apple, with, in partnership with St. George's, gave me the opportunity to present the use of iPad in medicine across Europe. Wow. So I went around Europe presenting on how the iPad could be used in healthcare. Wow. And it played a big part in my future innovation, which was I conveyed medic cases, medicine, and medic ethics 
once they took it down from the app store, I, met, I called it Uplay, hmm. right? And I created a, a, a tool called iAuthor that enables you to author VP cases or linear or dynamic documents sure. and push it to Uplay. Oh, wow. So I coined it iAuthor Uplay, both applications working together. Yeah. And so that's one of the powerful applications that we have now in our company at Current Care. Sure. Enables us to push different scenarios and even enable students who want to create their own virtual patient scenarios, yeah. push them to other students. That's great. And the question I have, so having a huge company come to you like Apple, recognizing your skill set and saying, you know what, we want you to travel around the world and showcase the use of the iPad in healthcare. I think with clinicians specifically, there's talk of people feeling like imposters, imposter syndrome, feeling like you don't deserve to be where you've got to. Was that ever a thought in your head at any point? So imposter syndrome, sometimes. I think we all experience that. Yeah, we yeah. all have moments like that. It's like when I was presenting with you guys. I'm the only one who's not a doctor. Yeah. I'm like sitting there, yeah. how, why am I addressing Yeah, you? but you know what? That's sometimes what clinicians need. We need a good engineer or inventor to come along and tell us, well, you know what, this can be done so much better. I think it's a partnership, right? Um, we There wouldn't be any innovation without people like yourself with the ideas, but then also with the clinicians coming in telling you the need, right? So it is a partnership. And so after that, so you, yeah, already, already, yeah, we could talk about probably like a whole episode about this MedEd apps. But after that, what was next? Based on all the experience I had with Apple and St. George's and Bart's and that, I was invited onto the European Commission to represent industry. And we authored together, we all wrote the roadmap to the digital patient. Oh, wow. Great. The, yeah. the digital patient, Horizon 2020. It was called uh, Discipulus yeah. prior to that. And if you look me up, you'll see that I'm an author there as well. And I contribute to that roadmap. And so that led me to feeling like I need to do more technologies and solutions that help us realize that digital you. Because you imagine the power of ha having a digital patient. If we can have a virtual you, you have all your dirty data when you put your yeah. blood pressure units and heart sensors and everything on. You have your hist historical data your family historical data, population data of people similar to you, mathematically modeled data of different conditions that you may have in your family history and when will you develop them, maybe, depending on your lifestyle. So you've got this virtual avatar of you. And now imagine getting to a point where you go, right, I'm going to have to put you through a treatment regimen and you could apply it to a digital patient with all this data going into it and fast forward it and see what the potential risk factors are the challenges, side effects, that kind of thing. Hmm. It might be that you, you're 70 years old and you finally got the courage to climb up the Himalayas. So I take that digital avatar and throw it to an avatar of the Himalayas and see what the PSI pressure would be on your lungs or rotational torque forces through your joints, sure. that kind of thing, before you even do it. Yeah. Now that's far-fetched in terms of achievable by any one person. That's why it was a government global initiative. You know what? It doesn't so, sound far-fetched, though, considering the latest advances that we've been seeing within the last couple of years. It doesn't sound surprising. And you imagine that, though, five years ago. Yeah, exactly. Six years ago. Yeah. It was, a, it was challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we have way more accessible AI. I mean, I can produce code in a heartbeat. I just ask an AI system. Yeah. I think with the digital patient and the advances that we've had today, prior to all of this, I, I'm a primary carer for my grandmother. I love my grandmother. 
and, and she's aging at home. And I want her to continue to age at home yeah. because she doesn't have major dementia or anything like that, like a lot of her friends in care homes and that. And she wants to live out her life in her place of choice, right? Her environment of choice. So I believe in allowing, helping our loved ones age in the environment of choice. Yeah. But I'm busy. I've got a career and I want to do things. I don't want to put my life on hold for five to 10 years, even though I would. There was no option. I would I'd do that for someone I love. Yeah. I didn't have to because I was able to develop something called the My Grandmother Project at the time, where I got occupancy sensors and I created an algorithm to monitor her pattern of behavior. And when she aberrated from her pattern of behavior, it would send out alerts mm. to me and her loved ones, like my dad and other support workers, that kind of thing. And the other powerful thing I developed off it was an over-the-air fall detection system. So if she falls over, she doesn't have to remember to wear her pendant or anything like that. Yeah. She just goes about her day, and if she has any problems and she falls over, I'll know immediately. And we'll go to action and make sure she's taken care of. So many scenarios with the elderly lying on the floor for hours. Yeah before they're seen to, and we don't want that. The only challenge with the current offering, which is the pendant, is that my grand's Indian. She wants to wear her sari and her yeah, bling, her all that gold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like they put on every single jewelry they own. You like, know what, my, my nunny's exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you understand, yeah. So absolutely. And she doesn't want to wear this ugly pendant yeah. that, you know, around her neck. So she was really happy when I created the solution. The other thing she loved that there's no cameras, but when she, there's aberrations, for example, if she normally goes to the bathroom four times over the course of 16 hour day, she suddenly goes three times in one hour, it'll send out an alert. She might have a UTI. So things like that, I think are really powerful. And it's become very popular. We've got an, a grant in Ontario from the Ontario government to outfit our homeless health shelter because of opioid overdoses and things like that. So we want to know if someone's not moving or they're aberrating in their pattern of behavior. So we've got that happening in April and May, which we're really excited about. Yeah, definitely. It is really exciting. Yeah. I just came off my my special study module for the University of Nottingham. And what I did was I focused on specifically bone health and frailty in the elderly. And we were, I was part of a multidisciplinary team. Sometimes I would go on home visits with the OT the occupational therapist, PTs, physiotherapists. Some days I'd be in the clinic with the consultant. And I really appreciated actually out of my whole experience going on the home visits, see, seeing the home environment, the different home environments that the elderly are living in. Because on one end of the spectrum, you would have people who had a great support network living at their son, daughter's house. And then you'd have some elderly patients completely on their own with no contact and completely isolated. And so seeing that difference only got to appreciate whilst being on the module there's talks of these wearables like you said but i don't think they're going to be the be all and end all solution i think what you're creating is even more powerful because you are able to track and analyze different movements and you're able to implement ai in terms of learning patterns of behavior so i wanted to move on now to so what are you actually working on in terms of the, this the ai route of sensora so right now, Sensora, what it does, it learns your behaviors and then fills in those gaps and has this structure. What we really want with AI is for it to continuously learn mm. and continuously grow and adapt. And in effect, 
because AI is so connected with everything, right? That it will give us suggestions for improvement. Mm. Interesting. I believe that AI has a capability of improving anything that we can come up with. Yeah. The other thing is that everyone is different, different strokes for different folks. My grandmother's different to your nana, but they have different things that they like to do. The structure of their homes, different, all sorts. Someone will have a walk-in shower, someone has a bath. All those things matter. And so the systems need to grow and develop. Yeah, so it's almost like personalized care for every single person, which is really exciting because everyone is different and everyone has different living environments. Everyone has a different lifestyle, schedule, routine. And so being able to implement person's routine, person's behaviors, people's patterns into um, into the sensors that you're working on for remote patient monitoring it will be revolutionary because it will be able to detect and be that much more accurate than conventional traditional wearables that are out there at the moment. And so I, I think what is interesting is the fact you didn't go down the wearable route or the camera-based option route. And why is that? Well, cameras are invasive, right? Like people don't, they're still adults, even though we kind of come full circle and we go on. Yeah, yeah. And so giving them that due respect and privacy is important. Most people don't want to be monitored or watched. Yeah. I didn't want to go camera with the solution. Not going wearable was, I didn't want anyone to have to remember to yeah. put anything on. The other thing is when you have a wearable or any kind of tech restricted in a wearable, they're super powerful. I mean, wearables are becoming almost as powerful as our phones, yeah. right? But the thing is that they still have to remember to put those on. Mm. They still have to remember to charge it. Whereas if it's mains powered, they don't have to remember to do any of those things. Also, if the power fails, it has a backup battery to continue monitoring. Mm. And it flips to 4G. So we've thought about these things to make it more adaptive. You think about in a care home, you've got 100 apartments, there's a fire. Power goes down, there's a fire. 98 people get out. How do you know who's still in the building and where they are? Firefighters have to risk their own lives to go get back in there and find you. But if you knew exactly where that person is, you could launch a ladder up to that window and Sensora will tell you exactly where that person is oh. and if they're moving, if they're mobile or not. So I think, and the other thing Sensora tells you is does, it's a full building management system. It's not just mobility monitoring and fall detection. It actually, when someone falls over, the lights come on. If they flood, forget there's a flood in the bathroom, it will close the water. It will switch off the pipes. Wow. It will tell you if the heating is put on really high and someone's left the window open. Mm. Energy management and sustainability. So Sensora is an all-encompassing ecosystem yeah. for building management services all under one. Sure roof rather than having aberrated systems right yeah plus the healthcare aspect and the add-ons of the benefits that it gives people the ability to reduce their carbon footprint enables them to automatically unlock doors if there's a problem so emergency services can get up there flood control is huge yeah. because most of these care facilities are on old buildings and flooding is an issue you also work with people with dementia well yeah. Is this something you've so, considered for commercial use as well? Because obviously 
more and more we ha- we're having smart home devices that are like for example ring i'm not sure if you're aware of the ring platform yes and so i it pretty much i think i read the statistic now one in four families are using ring as their main source of security platform for monitors sensors cameras and so is this something you've looked into making a commercial product as well not just for the elderly and for healthcare use case but actually something that can be used for security Absolutely. Repurposing a solution is important. We're applying it to a pain in healthcare that we've developed. But it could be applied to warehousing where you don't want sensitive items to fall off the shelf or any damages. It can be applied to so many different fields. It's really down to the individual. You can use a knife to butter a slice of bread or create a gourmet dish, right? Yeah. It's really using that tool and it's down to the artists that are out there like yourselves and and the innovators of tomorrow to look at sensor in a different way yeah and go hey we could use it in these other areas for sure yeah i'll give you an example if you turn sensor upside down and get a lot of drownings in pools right so you can see if someone doesn't come up from London for too long and send out an alert because you get a lot of pools these days in hotels that aren't manned all yeah time. sure there's so many ways you can repurpose it. Definitely. It's exciting as yeah. well being able to repurpose uh, a solution that was initially thought of because you obviously wanted to take care of your grandmother but then actually all the different people in different industries and sectors is going to help. It's very exciting. Even looking after children. Yeah, yeah, home, yeah. They might be on a different floor. Parents are downstairs, children are upstairs. You want to make sure they're all right. Yeah. Monitoring those kinds of things that suddenly someone's fallen over, you need to go check on them, they're not moving. Mm. You want to make sure that they're okay. Yeah. Um, but even in the garden, they could be playing out in the garden and something happens and you're in the kitchen or watching a movie or something and you haven't noticed. Mm. So there's different ways we can apply Sensora to different scenarios. Yeah. I'm curious as well, have you started working on predictive analysis for change in patterns of behavior that could be used to say you know what maybe something is going to happen the good thing about sensor is that it's a data collection yeah platform learning about you is it's a first step towards the digital version of you yeah because my roadmap is a digital patient the digital version of each of us imagine i put my database of outcomes not any patient data but database of outcomes under chat something like chat gbt and I was able to use that for a specific patient through my yeah. Can you imagine the insights they would give me on, by the way, this person's pattern of behavior is 80% mapped across to those who are prevalent to fall in mm. when their behavior reaches this stage. Sure, right? yeah, that that is really exciting because on my placement, we looked at the screening tools that are out there currently to predict whether someone is has an increased likelihood of falls and it introduces somewhat bias because there's only certain type of patient that will be coming into the hospital to to get the certain test done it'll be interesting to to implement that solution across all homes and so then that way you don't introduce that bias and more people are being identified who have an increased risk of fall exactly and we've got other solutions coming out i've got um, a non-recording camera that's going to be part of sensora it's called Aura, mm. and it looks at your outer signature. And when your outer signature changes, using your fall data, so if you've ever fallen over, it will use the data from prior to you falling that led to your fall. And anything that indicates a, a change 
in your gate, as they call it, yeah. will also add to us hopefully making sure that people don't yeah. fall again. Yeah. Yeah. Jitan, you're, you're working on some really exciting things. And this podcast, I wanted to talk to you as well about the story you gave at the talk. So you spoke about the arm badge sensor that you're working on currently for washing your hands and making sure that that is done properly. And though it's not what you're, uh, though you, I assume your main venture at the moment is working on Sensura. Tell me a bit about the story, what led up to the idea of this yeah. armband. So in March uh, 2019, I was on business in Canada and got a call from some of my friends saying that a lady that we really care about, that has looked after us a lot, wasn't very well. I never tell people when I go to Canada because I just know too many people. Yeah. Right? I'm not going to be able to give everyone attention. Yeah, it's like when you go to so India, I said, well, isn't actually, it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely, right? All those billions of people. Yeah. You. And and I just I said that, no, I'm just down the road, actually. There were at a local hospital. I went down and I went, hey, um, what's going on? She goes, oh, son, my kidneys are failing. They're about 8% each. And I was like, wow. And what are you boys doing here? Oh, well, we're going to see if we can donate to mum, mm. right? And I was like, all right, well, sign me up. And out of like 14 of us, I was the only match. Mm. And I stayed for the next three months getting my kidney functionality checks done and tests and things and walked around with buckets yeah. and things like that. Yeah. All the things you don't want to do, but you do it. And I was a perfect match. Everything was fine. They scanned both kidneys, left the healthier one with me, if that makes sense. And I came home for a month to get my affairs in order and went back to donate my kidney. What should have been a routine kind of recovery, four days in hospital and then recovering at home. Sadly, the nurse who changed my dressing didn't change her PPE after seeing a few patients because she said that there wasn't enough PPE. That's a whole political yeah. conversation for after. But I contracted what we call here a HCAI. Over there, they call it a HAI. Hmm. Right, because there is hospital associated infection. Yeah, here is healthcare associated infection. Right, so I contracted a HCAI, and I got very, very ill in end of October, early November, twenty nineteen. Mm. The next I know, I'm waking up during the zombie apocalypse, which I call COVID nineteen. Yeah, where it looks like people are in hazmat suits. Yeah, staying away from wow. me while they're trying to treat me. Wow, it's almost the start and of a, I'm a like, Hollywood movie, right? It feels like Walking Dead episode one, yeah. <laughs> when he just yeah, wakes yeah, up in the hospital. Yeah, wakes up and the whole world's gone to, yeah, crap. <laughs> That's exactly how it felt. I woke up on my 40th birthday. Wow. And I was like, what? I've lost yeah. two and a half, three months. Three months. So what's your initial and reaction when you're waking up, realizing that you've lost three months of your life? I think obviously people have to react to stuff differently, but... What was your immediate emotion? The immediate thing was, I'm alive. I felt like I just woke up from a deep sleep. Mm. The next thing was, is I'm really hungry. But outside of all of that, it was like, what's going to happen to my business? Because yeah. I'm working with bars and restaurants. Obviously, I, I lost all of that when COVID, the lockdown and everything shut down. Most of which never came back. Mm. They didn't make it. What am I going to do? What about my staff? How are they doing? Many people were confused, worried about me, upset as well, mm. because they're like, what's happening to our future? And I'm like, can't do anything about it. 
So you got all these things that just hit you. Yeah. You know, and obviously one of the first things is phone home. Sure. And, like, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. and then I recovered for a little longer because I wasn't healthy enough to get on a plane. And then just a few days before lockdown happened, I uh, flew back out, probably on one of the last flights back to the UK. Yeah. And it, it, it's strange. And this is, I think some good advice came from this uh, for myself through my own training. I had to focus on my training and my recovery. Even when you lose everything, you're not back at nothing. Because all the experience and knowledge that you gained during that journey is still with you. You are never starting again. Yeah. You are starting with a plethora of knowledge and experience. And I applied that to something I wanted to do, almost like a blank canvas. And so I created Oband. Oband was my idea that relaunched me in a way. Oband is OH because it's not about your health or my health. It's about our health, it's our health band. And people doing hand washing and things like that. And I realized hand hygiene is so important. Prevalence of HCII, as you may remember from my slide, it was nearly 800 yeah. million in terms of costs, right? Mm. So how could I improve hand hygiene? The WHO, you see it above all the hand dryers, the WHO yeah, yeah, hand washing gestures. I put an accelerometer, I put the minimal stuff in there to keep the cost as low as possible. I program them into the band, it's so always on feature with the light. The light, if it's green, you wash your hands in the last 20 minutes. Amber in the last 40 minutes. Red in the last hour, but you can adjust those timings. Vibrates remind you to wash your hands. And then you wash your hands and do all the gestures, right? Go through every single gesture. And it resets the lights back to green. You must wash your hands for a minimum of 20 seconds. And a minimal number of the hand washing gestures correctly. And it will reset it to green. And so that shows that when the light is on, you show your colleagues and the patients that you met hand hygiene standards with any, without any doubt. It did incredibly well. And I think that in terms of the feedback was incredible. We ran studies in Canada and all, all lots of different places. And I took it to Canada specifically because that's where I got my hate. And then when I got that feedback back, I realized that it's a, as it stands, it's a great educational tool, right? Yeah. But for the hospital industry, yeah. the nurses and doctors who are not allowed below, yeah, the elbow, below the elbow, they can't wear this wearable, right? So I need to develop it so I can move it above the elbow and maybe have a light on the lapel and it does the same thing, yeah. which will require some. So I did that, um, but I applied it to the restaurant industry. Chefs can still wear it. Your staff who are pouring you your wine, knowing that glass that they just touched, that you're going to touch, is met with clean hands. Sure, yeah. So there's still routes to market that you look at and an affor affordable band that doesn't cost 350 pounds, but is far lower than 50 pounds is important. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think that story specifically, what you just said, where you woke up two and a half, three months later, and instead of feeling a little bit sorry for yourself, thinking what, what's happening next i think a lot of people would do that and fair enough you've lost three months of your life instead of doing that turned almost a negative into you know what i want to build a solution for what happened to me to try and make sure that it doesn't happen to anyone else which is what i really loved and it is truly inspirational honestly the, the journey you have been through in terms of waking up 
with these hazard suits it's scary right you're gonna be scared also i think just looking at it from my point of view i probably would have been scared but then also angry frustrated with life but you 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 didn't have that or you you didn't let that consume you right you didn't let it correct yeah i think we all have a degree yeah. of that no we're not all superhuan beings sure. or like that but i think my coping mechanism was getting back to martial arts sure yeah it was very difficult because i didn't have a kidney right so I have to be very smart about how I approach my training in the martial arts now as well. Yeah. Can I handle impact and things like that? So I was, you probably go for a little funk, a mild depression of some kind where you feel like, oh man, what am I going to do? Like I can't physically get up and train. Yeah. But things, when you get to the advanced level of martial arts, you can visualize yeah. the forms and they manifest in the physical. Yeah. yeah. You're doing it. So here, it starts here before you manifest. Yeah, into yeah. your physical if you look at that if i can duplicate what's up here while i'm unwell and one day when i am healthy duplicate it in the physical form mm. then whatever you come up with up here if you truly have intention with no reservation you'll be able to duplicate that and i want to duplicate a wearable with who hand hygiene standards mm. and i did it yeah and it came up from here and every invention starts with a personal story that others can relate to you inspire people through stories you know what i'm just thinking about that actually when you gave your talk the the other obviously you gave some statistics but you know what what really stuck with everyone what really engulfed everyone in your story in your journey and your invention was your story right instead of giving these statistics because the statistics are out there and they're horrendous in terms of healthcare contracted infections uh, and just the, the amount of germs on hands in terms of hand washing stuff like that you could have just given those statistics and everyone would have sat there and thinking okay you've given those statistics it wouldn't have had that same impact yeah. in telling this personal story though which is what i really loved i i purposely as you noticed i only put one slide yeah up, right to give you an idea of yeah some yeah yes but i wanted to speak to you guys eye to eye you, if you saw i was like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. every single person i was doing but i really yeah wanted to you guys to feel my energy and feel my story and the journey that i went through yeah to get to a point of creating and manifesting an innovation and bringing it sure. to reality and so i didn't want your focus to be on the board i wanted your eyes to be on me yeah and for someone who's a nervous presenter, and everyone kept telling me I wasn't nervous, but <laughs> you were you were a really great I, I was, presenter, honestly. <laughs> thank you. You made me you. feel really comfortable enough to come up to you and say, you know what, I want to get you on the podcast. That story was amazing, and so you definitely yeah, didn't come come across nervous. <laughs> I think you know, it's also good to know that I was nervous in a way, mm. right? because like you might say, oh, he was really confident. I don't know if I can present like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, I was like bricking it, man. I was like nervous. I was really nervous. But not nervous because I was worried about messing up. I was nervous because I'm about to tell you something real personal. Mm. And I could get asked a question. I'll answer all the questions, but I could get asked a question that's really personal in a way. Mm. For me, um, I went through waves of like feeling low, feeling good, feeling low, feeling good. But ultimately, because of my underlying foundation through martial arts, I, I you know, surrounding myself with pretty strong good people i brought myself back up. yeah yeah and yeah i know i said at the start of this podcast that the phrase when life knocked you down you can either stay down or get back up 
and it's evident that you know what your your passion for martial arts is what picked you back up it's what helped you carry on i guess when you've just been kicked down and majorly kicked down it's what picked you back up and helped you carry on going up and um you're doing really well at the moment which i'm really happy to hear it's really really great and so as we close off the podcast what advice would you give someone who who feels like at the moment you know what life has just kicked them down well it's easier said than done when you say to someone hey just pick yourself up and carry on because anyone who understands mental health and depression knows that it's easier said than done yeah so you have to rely on different tools different things that will help elevate you it could be a friend and it could be saying um something in the mirror to yourself that that gives you power and i use this all the time that if someone says think positive does that really help yeah not really really, because you have think about those things that make you elevate you and the only thing is is that when you're feeling low a conversation with a friend no matter what positive things they say, maybe their posture or an eye roll or one negative comment could throw you off. So you truly got to find a way that you can do yourself. I often get my students to look in the mirror and even though if they're not martial artists, some, all of them, different students that I've got across the board, mentoring and my coaching students, I'll get them stand in front of the mirror and all I get them to say three times and trust me, you'll feel stupid the first time you say it, the first sentence, is, I am a warrior. I am a warrior. I am a warrior. And you'll see your posture completely change. Mm. And you'll feel this tingling automatically. I dare anyone that's listening to this, just go to the mirror and just look yourself dead in the eye and just say those words. And no matter how deflated you feel, it will take you up a notch. Right? It's an inch at a time. Get yourself up a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And it's those habits. It's very easy to just lie there and just not feel anything. and Feel a numbness and a boredom and all that kind of stuff. Another thing is bring yourself back into present time. That's a quick fix. But another way of bringing yourself back into present time is just put three dishes or four dishes in the sink and wash them properly like a mug that you wash inside wash around the rim wash the outside wash the bottom wash the handle and then rinse it out and put it up that process is the same as cleansing up here and it puts you very present so being present is the best gift you can give yourself and that's why it's called the present right and it's the best gift you can give others Remember my fourth philosophy, right? Intention alone is not enough. You must have intention without reservation. And doing these exercises will help, definitely. I call it, I am a warrior in washing dishes. All the things that people don't want to do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's been amazing having you, Jitam. And I I think so many of what, so much, so many of these philosophy pillars that you've mentioned throughout the podcast are really going to stick with me. And I almost got excited because I know I'm going to, when I go over this podcast again to edit, I'm going to write all of these specific points down and put a little sticky note on my, my laptop because a lot of them are so powerful and just repeating them over and over again, it almost convinces yourself to have that self-belief and to carry on going, which 
it's really powerful so amazing having you Jitan. and if anyone wants to get in contact Thank with you. you how can they i've got linkedin so Jitan kundalia you can find me on linkedin of course they can reach out to you and i'll be yeah, happy for you to i'll share leave your linkedin uh, details um link linkedin link in the description so if anyone wants to reach out to you they definitely can so it's been amazing having you thank you so much for coming on the podcast you too ash thank you so much it's been a pleasure